It's good to gather together this morning. Um, I don't know why, we seem to have had a little bit more time this morning, and so I just opened it up to an opportunity for people to share a word of thanks or an answered prayer. And uh, one of the answered prayers, I think, um, goes out to all of us, or as all of us should hear it. You remember that a number of uh, months ago, we presented the case before you of Everest and his wife, who were from Nigeria, and they were having a hard time getting a permanent visa. And uh, Everest was in the first service, and when I mentioned from Psalm 116, it says, I love the Lord because he hears and answers my prayers for mercy. Everest jumped up and he says, we have received our visas. And uh, it is, it's a really cool thing. God does answer prayer. Not always the moment we ask, but God works in wonderful ways to bring about um, answers in our pleas for mercy. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, uh, take them and turn to 2 Thessalonians. We will be done next week. That's our last uh, 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 message out of this book for, uh, well, for a while. Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 3, and we'll go over some ground that we covered last week, um, verses 6 to uh, verse 15. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that they have received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not, like, uh, we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would, not, or we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person. Have nothing to do with them that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Father, thank you for your word. It does guide us in family life. Uh, help us, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we uh, spent a little bit of time talking about Paul's prayer. And Paul had asked that these Thessalonian believers pray for him. Uh, not necessarily for him, uh, particularly, but that in the work that he was doing, he would be successful. He prayed that the gospel that they proclaimed would go out and that it would receive a positive hearing. He prayed that those who proclaimed the gospel would be protected. And so now he moves, though, from the going out of the gospel to uh, those that need to hear it, that they might hear and believe and be saved, to talking now to the church about obedience to that gospel. And this is what we find a balance in Christian life. It's not just hearing the gospel, but it's also um, uh, obeying the gospel. It's living according to the word of God that he has given to us. And that's the point here as we frame this whole text this morning is that it's framed by, I think, two large realities. The first is simply a reality that God has spoken and that God has spoken with authority for our lives. He's given us the context through which our lives find fulfillment and find meaning and, and are, are, are ordered in a way that is pleasing to him. And in this particular text, you find that word, if you might have been listening, five times in there, he talks about, he commands you, he commands you, I command you, I command you, I command you. 
And he talks about teaching that he had given them. So the whole uh, guidance and structure of Paul with these believers is the word of God, which is to guide and direct and pattern their lives. You can't have a relationship with God and enjoy the joy of salvation with God and not have obedience to God. The two go hand in hand. You can't have Christ as your Lord, but not, or as your Savior, but not as your Lord. And so Paul is instructing the congregation. This is what it means to be a follower of Christ. This is what it means to pattern your life after the commands of God. The second thing, though, that he describes for us is that the church is a family. This is really important that we understand this. I was thinking this. When you have gathered together here, when you look around here together, do you regard these people, if this is the regular place of worship for you, do you regard these people as your brothers and sisters? You should, because we are. Paul writes to the uh, people in Thessa or in, in, uh, uh, to Timothy, and he says to that particular church, remind them that they are the household of God. And the instructions that he gives them are, are so that they might know how to, uh, how, how they might know how to get along as the household of God. We know that Christ is the head of this house. So it is in a very real sense, we are not just a gathering of random people that, that think this is a great place to be on Sunday. That's part of it, I believe. We, are, we gather together to worship God because that's what we do here. But we are brothers and sisters in Christ. If you embrace this body, these people that are around you and in front of you and beside you are your brothers and sisters in Christ. Family matters. Relationships matter. Not necessarily because I want them to, but because the Bible tells us that they do. And just as a home is defined by the parents and if they have children, the children that are in their home, so a church is defined by our belonging to this particular family. Now, there are lots of families of God, so to speak, which make up the whole family of God. You can find them in different blocks of even in Parksville and up and down the island. A lot of local families of the people of God. But the church is defined by the context of how we belong to one another. And so these words then need to be understood in context of a family. We are a family and we live together, we work together, we cry together, we suffer together, we, we discipline together. And so here in this text, Paul reminds us of both of those. The commands of God which we are to obey and the family of God to which we belong. And so it's within this context then that we look at these particular words that are before us. So the very first thing that he does is he addresses the community. And you can see that in the first couple, in the first verse there in verse six. Now we command you, there's the commands, brothers, there's the family, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, the head of the church, that you keep away from any brother, there's the family, who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you've received from us, the commands of God. There it is in those in that one verse, those two themes. And Paul is confident of the general trajectory of obedience amongst these people, because in verse four, he says, we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that you command, that you've been patterning your life after obedience and you will continue to obey these things. Now, I think as you know, family life is not an easy life. There are lots of joys and uh, wonders of being a family, but there are also some difficult times in a family, and there are some trials that come from being in a family. And so as Paul begins to speak to this group of Christians, he begins by, by, uh, by, by talking to the broader community, those who are walking in line with the commands of God, and he addresses them gently but firmly, and not from his authority as an apostle. He's not saying, I, Paul, say this. He's saying, 
that in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the name of our Lord Jesus, the one who is the head of this house, it's not rooted in his personal opinion, what he says to these people. It's rooted in the authority of Jesus Christ, the word of God. He says, if you are a member, or I say, if you're a member of our church here, if, first, if you are an official member of our church, we have family rules, so to speak. Um, it's, we would call it our statement of faith or what we believe. And that, that is part of the structure of family life here at Parksville Fellowship Baptist Church. Now, you can go to any church, and they will have similar family guidelines. They will call it their statement of faith or what they believe. And so that, in part, is what uh, defines some of the parameters of how we gather and how we meet as a family of God here. It's a uniting statement. It is a family-defining statement. It's not all that we believe or teach, but it's some of the important things that we believe or teach. And if you're not an official member of the church, but this is a regular uh, group of believers that you have decided to associate with, and I know many of you are like that, we are family together. And it's those boundaries which, which give us understanding of what it looks like. Together as a family, we're gonna face a lot of issues. And we're going to have to get together as a community and work these things out. Uh, we will face issues, and we are facing issues, of the definition of marriage. We'll face issues of sexual identity. We'll face issues of sexual morality. We are, I think, going to face issues of, of, of when it's okay to kill a person. Our country is going down a terribly dangerous road in killing people almost at want now, legally. We're going to have to talk about this as a family, and we will talk about this as a family and say, what do we believe as the people of God? What, is the, what are the boundaries for us on the dignity of life, on, 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 on what God says about human life? And so family gets together, and we talk about the issues that matter to us as a local body. And what will guide our path? The Word of God and the authority of Christ. So it's difficult then in the context of that, but then it makes sense when Paul would say then, keep away from any brother who... And you say, really, keep away from a family member? Well, think about it, though. We have lots of these things. You're, you're probably members of organizations or, or sports teams or groups that have boundaries of what is acceptable behavior. And when you cross those boundaries, there's a way to either correct you and bring you back into the boundaries of that organization or that particular uh, setting that you're a part of or to cut you loose. Uh, we have these illustrations in sports, for instance. A player can be benched. Benched for poor performance or benched for not listening to the coach or benched for being a bad influence amongst the team. And the coach can say, enough, you know, you're, you're having a bad influence on the team. Sit down and watch us for a little while. There are times in which you can be suspended. And so you can be completely removed from the team and you can be said, you are suspended for a period of time. You are, have no contact with, no interaction with. You are off the team. Or then there are times when you can actually be kicked off the team for good. So we, these aren't unfamiliar realities. This isn't like the church is just a mean place to be. This is just part of the structure of society in which we live. And so the family of God is boundaried by the commands of God. And we, under, we need to understand this for relational strength and wholeness. If we bring this into our own particular settings, we begin to realize the importance of what Paul is saying here. In any family, it cannot be anything goes. That is just chaos, is it not? If, if there are no guidelines, if there are no rules, if nothing matters, 
Not only is that chaos, but where is the love? There's just, where is the love? <laughs> Some of you know how my head thinks once in a while. But where is the love in that? That's not love at all. Love is expressed through boundaries and through guidelines. Family simply can't be a group of people that live under a roof, but do whatever they want. Our actions impact one another. Our behaviors influence those around us for good or for bad. And I believe most of you know what I'm saying. You intuitively know that you've experientially walked through this. The same is true for a church family. You can't be part of a church like this and think that your behaviors and actions don't matter. They do. They influence all of us as I influence you. Willful rebellion is destructive. Willful rebellion is sinful and it's contagious. I was thinking about this a little with, uh, with Achan. Some of you may be familiar with Achan. In the Old Testament, um, Joshua chapter 7, the people of Israel had been commanded to go in and take the land of Canaan. And so they had started that. And they had gone to Jericho and they dealt with Jericho in an amazing fashion that in their unity and obedience to God, God gave them victory over Jericho. And so next on their list was a city called Ai. And they scoped it out and they thought, well, it's not a really big city, so we'll just send a, a smaller army and they'll go handle Ahai. So they send this smaller army uh, to deal with Ahai and it is just a disaster. They are routed. They're sent running with their tail between their legs and in fact, 38 Israelite soldiers lost their lives. And Joshua is beside himself. What has happened? And as you know the story, it turns out, well, there was one individual who decided that he would disobey God in Jericho and he took a bunch of things that he was not supposed to take that were supposed to be banned for destruction. He hid them under his tent and he, I don't know how he ever thought he was gonna spend them, but he kept them for himself. And the long and the short of it was, it was because of Achan's sin that Israel lost that particular battle. The point simply is, is sin matters and it has an impact on those around you and on the family. And so when he says, keep away from in this particular text, it's a rare word. It's only used twice in the New Testament. It doesn't mean formal excommunication. There are texts in the Bible which will lead us to that conclusion for willful, ongoing disobedience and lack of repentance. But this is not one of those texts. And I don't think it, it, it's unlikely that it means, well, they can't share the table of the Lord together with you either. But the focus is not so much on the Christian who is rebelling as on the community's response to that person. And to the community, he says, avoid them. We had these conversations with our boys growing up a lot. It, it, from a very young age, right through teenagehood, we would have a conversation with them and we would remind them, listen, guys, the people that you choose to hang around with will influence you. You need to be aware of that. And so we'd go to such and such and we'd talk about such and such in a careful way, but we would say, avoid them. Don't have anything to do with them. Stay away from them because they will lead you down a dangerous path. So you might say to, you might have this in your family, stay away from and you fill in the blank. So sometimes we use this even in our own families, in our own context. I need to distance myself from people who persistently behave like that. Proverbs twenty two twenty four 24 illustrates this in, in a pretty profound way. It says, make no friendship with a man given to anger or go with a wrathful man. Why? Why would the Bible and why would the wisdom writer make that such a strong statement? 
lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. I have seen so many people get into so much trouble because they have got into a relationship with somebody given to anger. And there's twofold danger to that. One is you will learn those habits yourself. You will learn that that's an acceptable way to react. That's an acceptable way to express your disagreement. Or you will find yourself being beat up because somebody has smacked a guy who's been angry and you're just caught up in the wave of his destruction. The point being, avoid those who are angry, who are characterized by anger. A different way of putting it is in Corinthians. Do not be deceived. Deceived about what? Bad company corrupts good morals. It's just the way, it's just, it's the reality of relationships. It's the, it's the reality of human nature. And so when, when Paul says this to this particular church, it's this recognition that, listen, you will pick up bad habits. You will pick up their rebellious idol, or, uh, um, idleness if you're not careful. So, so part of it is a self-protection. Just avoid them. Don't excommute them. Don't treat them as though they're not alive, but just keep a distance from them. The second thing that he says to this congregation, he, he, gives, he says, and you know my example. Example is powerful. It is, really makes a difference. Imitation they used to, what is it? Imitation is the greatest form of flattery. Uh, imitation is a biblical reality. We're told to imitate God. And so Paul reminds them of his example among them. One of the worst things that one can do is say, do as I say, not as I do. And, I, 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 and it's illustrated in so many ways. I, I think this is one of the most powerfully undermining things of parental authority is when a parent says, do as I say, not as I do. And you see that with bike riding. Just pull that out of the hat. You know, a family riding down the road together and uh, little kid one, two, and three are wearing helmets and big parent one and two are not. You, you say a ton in that. Uh, that's just one illustration of do as I say, not as I do. When it comes to spiritual things, there can't be anything more disastrous than to ask of your family and your spouse and encourage that this is a path that we have to do and then you just don't do it yourself. It just undermines your legitimacy. And so Paul says, when we were, we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. In other words, Paul's saying, I didn't, I'm not telling you to do anything that we didn't do that we didn't give you an, amp, uh, an example to do. He says, but with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It's his gain. He's making a point there. He says, how we live impacts other people. And again, I I'm, I'm make it very clear. We're not talking about those who are unable to work because of infirmity or sickness or, or circumstances that temporarily have, have made it impossible to find work. We're talking about those who refuse to work. And if you refuse to work, somebody has to pick up your slack. And this is what Paul is saying to this group of people. Then Paul says something important, not because we don't have the right. See, Paul, is, Paul is waiving his right to receive remuneration for serving them as a pastor and as a missionary. In other places, he will exercise that right, but here he is waiving that right, which we can do. We don't have to take every right that we think we have. He waives it in order that he can be an example 
to them to imitate them. If you want to see his justification for the right to receive remuneration, you can go and read 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and you will find him there outlined four reasons why it is okay to pay a pastor. <laughs> and I hope they make sense. <laughs> I, I, well, as a side note, I am so thankful for you congregation, you people, my family, for supporting us in the work that we do. And we couldn't do it without your support. Um, but I thank you for that. But he gives the outline for why those that are full-time ministry receive remuneration. Paul's point, though, is to these believers, is not that we don't have the right to be paying, uh, to be paid for our work, but we've chosen not to exercise that right in this situation amongst this community because we need you to realize that work matters. And then the summary of what he's been saying to them for months now, it, it started when he first came. It was part of the first letter that he wrote. We looked at this last week, and it's part of this letter now. He's saying, if a man will not work, he should not eat. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. You know, what fascinates me is, is some of you might say, well, that's awfully mean. Well, you know, that's, not, that's just not a biblical saying. You can find this around the world. Almost every culture has some kind of saying, some kinds of reference, some kind of expectation that everybody pull their weight. It's just, it's a cultural norm. And I would say it's a creational norm. Creational because we are made in the image of God. And as we saw last week, God is a working God. He gives us an example of work. He says, in six days, I created the heavens and the earth, and the seventh day I rest. So you too work on six days and rest on the seventh. He gave us that command in Exodus. You need to work six days of the week. So it's part of who we are in the image of God. We reflect our creator. We reflect our father. And he is a working God. We see this in all of God's creation, do we not? Like if, uh, if uh, salmon decides he's going to be lazy and say, oh, I'm not going to eat any herring today. Like I'm going to wait until my friend salmon brings me some herring. He's going to starve. If a bear doesn't prepare for the winter, it's his coming. He's going to die in hibernation. If ants don't store up food and squirrels don't store up food for the winter, they will starve. We see it modeled in creation. So it's not just a biblical statement. It is a creational example. And I believe we are made in God's image and therefore we reflect that image in working. And then Paul does something extraordinary here. He addresses these people specifically, the rebellious idlers. Look at what he says in verse 11 and 12. And I'll tell you why it's extraordinary in a second. He says in verse 11, for we hear that some among you, so now he's talking to them. We hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. I don't think there could have been a more awkward moment in the church at this point. And I say that because these letters were read publicly. So it was like that there was a letter that would have come and people would say, hey, there's a new letter that's come from Paul, our spiritual father. And uh, let's get together and let's hear what Paul has to say. And you say, really? And, well, yeah, look at what 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 27 says. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. 
So there's a sense in which there's a public reading of scripture. So the church is commanded, and all of a sudden, everyone's sitting there, and he says, now I speak to you as a congregation of the faithful ones. Keep away from those who aren't working, and all of a sudden, there's a bit of squirming going on. And now, as the letter is being read, he addresses particularly those who are being disobedient to the command of God. It must have been an awkward moment for the congregation there. But what a beautiful thing that Paul does. It forces a bit of gentleness. It forces a bit of carefulness. But it begins to do the work amongst this whole church of God. There's an issue that we have to address together as a family. That's one of the reasons why we give attention to the public reading of Scripture here. It really matters that we read Scripture publicly. Sometimes we read a lot. Sometimes we read a little. But we will continue to do that, and we will continue to do it at great length sometimes. And one of the reasons is because the public reading of Scripture has an amazing impact on the people of God. Because all of a sudden you, read, you hear something read, and all of a sudden it convicts you. And it's like the, 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 the Word of God read just, just shakes you up because you hear it actually saying something that is correcting a behavior that you've embraced or that you're going down. Others, it's an affirmation, and you say, thank you, Father, for helping me as, I, as I've walked in order to keep that obey. I'm not stealing. As we read a commandment, say, thou shalt not steal. Others, we read that, and they're convicted because they've been stealing that week. It would be the same effect that this letter would have had on this congregation as they gathered together and had this scripture read publicly. Have you ever been in a, a, in a setting and a scripture has been read and, and all of a sudden you start to squirm a little bit? Or maybe you squirm for somebody else that's there because you might know something about their life and it really, I wish they wouldn't have read that scripture this morning. That's the power of the word of God. And so I believe that's part of the reason why Paul would say, have this scripture read publicly. It's what Psalmist says in Psalm 19 as he's talking about the wonder of the sufficiency of the word of God. One of the things he says is your servant is warned by them. And there is great reward in keeping them. In another place, it says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of the soul and joint of spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intention of the heart. Have you ever heard a word of God and it's just gone right to an intention of your heart that you've had that week? You say, how did God know that? Why did you pick that particular passage? It's the power of the word of God. All scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. That's one of the reasons that we publicly read the scripture is that we let it loose in your heart and in my heart to work with conviction or affirmation. I've often heard this saying, the Bible will keep you away from sin or sin will keep you away from the Bible. That's true. Sometimes people stop reading their Bible because they're terribly convicted every time they read it. And they would rather not be convicted of their sin and hear the word of God than hear it. And when you read the Bible on a consistent basis, it continues to shape you and form you and direct you. And so again, that's the importance of the public reading of Scripture. 
Paul would have been aware of that. And then he says, now such persons we command and encourage. I love the gentleness there. We command, but we also encourage. We command, we say, listen, you're sinning, but there's a path back. And he gives this amazing path back. Do your work quietly and earn your own living. The graciousness of Paul and the graciousness of a family ought to be that way. We, we ought to stand firm on scriptures, but we ought to provide a path back to reconciliation and restoration and forgiveness. Why might work be a good thing? We spent a, a little bit of time last week talking about work. Uh, actually, a lot of time last week, all of last week talking about work, but I didn't say anything about this one, I, I think, part of work, which I don't know if we think a lot about. In another context, Paul says this. He says, For you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and those who were with me. In other words, I worked so that I could provide for my own needs. But then he said, In all things I have shown you that by working hard, there it is, working hard, it is important, we, may, we must help the weak and remember the words of our Lord Jesus. Well, I wonder what Jesus said. Remember what it is? It's more blessed to give than to receive. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. Why? So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Is that one of the reasons why you work? Do you work so that you can pay your mortgage? Yeah. Do you work so that you can save up money for retirement? Yeah. Do you work so that you can take a nice holiday once in a while? Yeah. Do you work so that you might have something to leave to your grandkids? Yeah. Do you work so that you might have something to give to those who have nothing? That's one of the strong motivations in Scripture. It's one of the reasons God gave us work is so that we might have extra to share with those who have little. Years ago, I read a book um, called Man in the Mirror by Patrick Morley. He was an extraordinarily successful businessman in the States. And as he continued to do well in business, he didn't raise his standard of living. And there's a line in there which, which I've thought about often. I must admit it, it's not something that I've embraced fully, but I, I've embraced it partially. It's this, we work not to increase our standard of living, but to increase our standard of giving. It's a wonderful thing to think through, loved ones. To work, not just for yourself, not just for more stuff for you or a better life for you, to accumulate more for you, but to work so that you might have something to give to those who are in need. I, I was amazed at the generosity of God. God doesn't give you just enough, does he? He says to Adam in the garden, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. The generosity of God is profound. Psalm 37, 21 says, The wicked borrows but does not pay back. But the righteous person is generous and gives. Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner. But blessed is he who is generous to the poor. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. 
that's an important one to think through. You know, our thoughts, what we think when we see a street person or we see a poor person. Ah, oh, you bum. Why don't you get a job? When we do that, you know who you insult? God. Because God made that person. Made them with dignity and made them with value and made them with worth. And so the second half of that verse says, but he who is generous to the needy honors his maker. When you help those in need, when you help those who have less than you, when you help those who have come along hard times, you actually honor God who made them. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and the Lord will repay him. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to be share, ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Do you know that giving makes you a selfless person? I think it's important to work that one through a little bit. You don't become a less, a less selfish person and then give. You give, and as you give, you become a less selfish person. It's important for us just to work that through in the context of why do I work? Why has God given me work? What do I do with what I get from my hard work? Finally, he sums up to the community again now, talking to the broader community. And again, remember, they're all listening to this letter. They're all hearing it together as a people. He pulls it all together, first by a word of encouragement. As for you, brethren, do not be weary in doing what is right. I, I think that's such a helpful thing that Paul says there. I think sometimes parenting is exhausting. I found it exhausting at times. I, I felt the, the constant... It felt like constantly you're riding your kids for something. And riding's not even the wrong word, but you, you're so concerned that they walk in the right way and then they follow the commands of God. And sometimes you just want to throw your hand in the air. It's enough, I'm done with this. This is just a waste of my time. I'm so exhausted. Well, Paul would say, no, don't give up. Don't let go. Don't stop. Continue to do good. Don't be weary in doing good because that will produce results. That is the right way to go. And so he's saying to this church, don't be weary in doing good. Just because a few people right now are rebellious and they're, they're refusing to work and they're not pulling their weight and they're causing trouble and they're being busybodies, don't because of that say, fine, I'm not gonna do anything. No, get back on your horse, work hard and be generous. And he says, take note of those who obey or disobey. That's really, it's not like it, it, it would have been a witch hunt and we'd have to, oh, is that person obeying or not? It would have been really obvious. And he's just saying, just take note of those who are just refusing to obey God. This, that's the issue. It's, I realize the issue is work, but it's a bigger issue. It's they are rebelling against God. They are choosing to say, God, you are wrong or God, stuff it. I'm not going to work. And so he says, take note of them. And note he doesn't say elders take note of them. It's to the brothers, the family, the church gathered together. It's, this is a, we are family. 
We work together on these things. We, we pull together on these things. Have nothing to do with them. That's, that's the Bible, by the way. That's not me. It says, have nothing to do with them. Separate yourself from them. Don't mingle with, don't associate with. Paul, in another place, wrote, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. In other words, he's saying, listen, it, it, we live in a sinful world, and the way that the gospel is spread and the way that the gospel goes out in the world is that we associate with and we, we eat with and we fellowship with and we work with and we go to school with. We don't, we, we don't hole up in a monastery and have nothing to do with he says, so I wrote you, don't, I don't mean don't associate with the people of the world, but he says that you not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. The issue is flagrant disobedience there. The issue is that such behaviors are at odds with flagrant, or they're at odds. Flagrant sin is at odds with what it means to be part of a family of God. It's not that Paul is being mean or harsh. He's just recognizing that there has to be limitations and boundaries to what it means to be part of a family. And there's ways in which we live together. And then, and I, you know, I wanted to avoid this, but I can't. Why? Why are you to have nothing to do with them? So that they may be ashamed. I fought that, and I still fight it now. Part of it, and I'm so thankful, and we'll get to this in just a second for the surrounding context. Those of you who are older may not know this. Those of you who are younger and are well-versed in all the social medias, you understand this. We are living in a culture which is a shame culture. And people go out of their way to shame somebody. They shame them because of their dress, they shame them because of their looks, they shame them because of their identity, they shame them because of their friends. They, I can give you the adverbs, I won't speak them from this pulpit, but there are adverbs that we put before shame. And it is vicious, and it is vile, and it is mean, and it is wrong to intentionally go out and shame somebody with no hope of reconciliation, no path back to friendship, just out of revenge, out of respite, out of spite, out of hurt, we shame them. And if that's what this text is talking about, I don't want anything to do with it. But I'm thankful that this is not what this text is about. I wrestled in my head, can shame ever be a motivation for behavior? Actually, you can go online and you can find that question, and secular psychologists would say, yes, there are times in which shame can be a proper motivation for behavior. I don't necessarily follow what they say, but the reason I say that yes is because the Bible says yes. That's what God says. And so what can he possibly mean then? Well, I think this is the context. He says, warn him as a brother. 
And what's he saying? He says, I want you to make them feel uncomfortable. I want you to make them feel the weight of their sin. I want you to make them feel how they're infecting everybody else and impacting everybody else. I want you to, I want you, I want them to feel that. Why? Not as an enemy, but as a brother. And what's the point? So that you can embrace them back in the family. As they come to real, have you ever felt shame? I felt shame. And it's awful. The feeling that your, your blood just rushes to your head and, and you think everybody's looking at you and think everybody knows what's going on in your life and you begin to believe the lies that you tell yourself. You say, I'm a bad person. I'm a rotten person. There's no hope. There's no way out of this. But when shame is used in a proper, reconciliative, redeeming context, it's wonderful as I've had conversations with my wife about certain things that I've done in the past. And sometimes my wife has said words which have made me feel the weight of my shame. And as I've worked it through and as I've wrestled with it, I come to realize I am so sorry, Kathy. And it brings me back into a desire to have a restored relationship with my wife. The shame worked. And I think that's the context of shame here. It's not so that we kill somebody. It's not so that we never have anything to do with somebody. It's that in order that we can win them and reconcile them and bring them back to family and enjoy the wonders and the joys of love together as a family of God. I think this is why Paul prays. I pray that your love for one another will increase and abound. Because when our love for one another is increasing and abounding, Shame finds its rightful place and purpose for bringing people back into a wonderful relationship with the people of God. We are brothers and sisters. We're not enemies. And our goal is to win people back, not to my way of thinking, but to the biblical way of thinking so that we can bring glory to God. Father, thank you for this word that's before us today. It just reminds us, I think, of the broader realities of life, of your word, and of the importance of family. Family matters, Father, and it is a wonderful thing to be part of a family who takes these things seriously, who takes misbehavior seriously, who doesn't deal with it out of anger and frustration and attempt to destroy, but says, we got to work this out because we got to get back on the same page. we got to love one another again. We can't have this tension any longer. And just as we understand that in our own families and home, Father, we just so long to live under the same roof with the same guidelines and same, same ways of thinking, so we long that for the church or long for that for the church. I thank you for this family here, Father. I thank you for the brothers and sisters that call this home. I pray, Father, that we would see our mutual responsibility to and for one another to walk this journey together, to correct when correction is needed, to affirm when affirmation is needed, to exhort when exhortation is needed, to pray when prayer is needed, to bear one another's burdens when uh, burden bearing is necessary. Oh, Father, would you continue to draw us together, to bind us together with strong cords of love that we might rejoice together that we are a family. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.